Again, it's a great joy and privilege to be back with you uh, for a year ahead from last year. And of course, I'm very grateful I'm still alive. So uh, <laughs> I wake up every morning and say, Lord, another day. That's great. Um, well, you may wonder what this theme is all about, the revision of theoanthropology and defense against the robotic culture. But... Um, the, the gist of it is simply this, that the term was first used by Karl Barth and uh, he was uh, fighting uh, against the distortion of being human in the ideologies of the 20th century, but uh, it's much subtler, but it's more frightening, the globalization of our distortion of being human by, by becoming robotic in the 21st century. So that's what we're going to focus on. And uh, I don't want to speak very long because really the purpose is your discussion. So um, that's, the, that's the aim I have to hear what you have to ask or discuss or dispute or be like my wife. Don't agree with a word what he says, but this is my point of view. So let's have a lively discussion. In the founding days of Regent, and even now, people wondered what had a geographer to do with a theological college. Since there are always many cultural blind spots we all have, I could speak on this for the whole of our session. And I was certainly always sensitive of Proverbs 17:24, A fool's eyes wander to the ends of the earth. Is that what a geographer does? <laughs> Actually, since I first became a serious scholar, I've rather been a historian of ideas because my thesis for my doctorate work was actually on the exchange of uh, plants and therefore cultural uh, exchange of ideas between the Aztecs and the Moorish gardeners in the huertas of uh, the east of Spain. So it was historical from the beginning. And uh, being a historian of ideas gives one great flexibility to interface with cultures past and present. And again, as a Christian, I've never seen myself as having a professional identity, either lay or ecclesiastical, which all tends to create, I'm afraid, tunnel vision. That's the nature of being a professional. You have tunnel vision. So this personal preface may help you appreciate where I shall be coming from in this topic, that we've chosen for our discussion. It is a revision of theoanthropology, for as I've just said, the term was first used by Karl Barth in the late 1930s and expounded in his church dogmatics against the ideology of Nazism to extol the new romanticism of the superior race of Aryan man. And it was further intensified with the subsequent innovation of socialist man that was most exaggerated by the Romanian dictator Nikolai Shishanku, who experimented tragically, appallingly, with small peasant children in their hundreds of thousands that were laid out in cots in barrack-like quarters, deprived of all human uh, tenderness or care in order to create this new race, socialist man. So as Barth said stoutly nine at the Barman Declaration against the Nazi takeover of the state church, so he further emphasized that all humanity has been created in the image and likeness of God. Prior to any human secular anthropology, the mystery of human beings is that God created them all. Pope John Paul II made a similar protest against the communist ideology in Poland in his doctorate work and subsequent researches. Now a new revision of theoanthropology is needed as we face the globalization of hominids as various kinds of robotic anthropology. And this is even more serious for it is now becoming global. Now, when we speak of a revision, we simply mean that Christians have to reaffirm theoanthropology in a new historical context. 
For there is the new threat of the electric revolution that we are popularly calling the tech revolution. We are anticipating that quantum computers within the next decade will outpace the speed and span of the human mind with artificial intelligence. Robots of every scale and use will be operating as they are now fast doing. Unlike the ideologies of the 20th century, which were still regional, these new developments are already global in scale. At the same time, secularism as a new form of atheism is attempting to blur or even remove the distinction between humans and animals. This is somewhat ironic when democracy is at the same time calling for human rights, but logically now being coupled with animal rights. (laughs) So then we have to ask how far down the scale do we have to go to have animal rights? Just for the mammals? Or for the birds and fishes? Perhaps even as the Buddhists do for the insects? Or even to all bacteria? Do all living things (laughs) have their rights? (laughs) Globalizing Uh, globalization is eliminating then many traditional boundaries if you saw any part of the memorial service to the world champion boxer Muhammad Ali on televised this past Friday you would think he'd become a god in paradise (laughs) embracing all religions why? because he was the greatest boxer of all time is that what narcissism has become? man making himself God by physicality alone? Since the French Revolution, French intellectuals have been celebrated as taking philosophy to its extremities. And so now a new thinker, Luc Ferré, who teaches at the Sorbonne, has written a new book called Man Made God. He pays token appreciation to Christianity in giving us our humanitarian instincts for the world's nations to sign the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, or more locally, the French charity of Doctors Without Borders. But his conclusion is the advocacy of the humanism of humanity made God. Wow, what does that mean? Pope John Paul II, fighting against communism as Karl Barth did against fascism, also demanded the return to theocentrism instead of anthropocentrism. But following Nietzsche, now uh, Luc Ferré, um, quoting from The Twilight of the Idols, sees the illusions of transcendence as the illusions of the sacred. And making the new god history... Humans are no longer authors of their acts or ideas, only a product. Like Samson using his great strength to pull down the pillars of the temple to destroy all under its sacred canopy, Nietzsche equated the death of God with the death of humanity. To move forward, man has now to take on, according to Ferry, godlike powers to restore the sacred with man remaking God thus Luke Ferry concludes we are living today I believe at a moment when the two processes I have attempted to describe in this book the humanization of the divine and the divinization of the human now intersect this intersection is a point and this point is one he admits of confusion Yes, we're living today with utter confusion. So there's no doubt then that the magnitude of the changes we are in today surpass all others in all eras of human history. As David Christian concludes in his book what he calls Big History, Maps of Time, he says the scale of human impacts on the biosphere and on other humans is now so great that the changes of the 20th century will stand down the scale of planetary history. Yet, before we get hysterical about this perspective, we need perhaps 
a more common sense Irish perspective of wit as well as common sense that we get in C.S. Lewis. So in the last of his children's stories, The Last Battle, when there seems a foregoing apocalyptic, there's an increasing murmur among all the creatures that Aslan, or God, is not dead. For every now and again, Aslan himself speaks the words further up and further in. To all who had spent their lives desiring and seeking, not knowing what, the new Aslan is revealing himself, sometimes in a storm and flurry of glory, sometimes in a majestic voice, but at other times in a very gentle voice, but always with the same message, further up and further in. The sunlit land of Narnia now becomes different like a story you've never heard, but very much wanted to hear, or like a lovely landscape you'd only seen in the mirror, and now you actually see. The new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. Every creature began to say, I have come home at last. This is my real country. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. Now it is all farewell to the Shadowlands. God's truth, we know, is all truth. And when, as Pilate was asked what is truth, perhaps not honestly knowing how to answer, we know that truth is history. And what is history? History is the patience of God with wayward and rebellious human beings. It is God entering into time as he did at the Incarnation that determines all that is true. For God became man that we should become godly and only then truly human. So the claim to be a Christian is simply the claim to desire to become a more genuine human being. However apocalyptic our times may appear to make us afraid, we're all safe at the foot of the cross, knowing that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. There we are safe in knowing and trusting such a God who transfigures all our fears and human sufferings by his eternal love. It is a quality of Christian life that all we need is a nodal moment that may transform and redirect our whole journey of life. Yet it may occur so inconsequentially as perhaps you may experience this morning just as you are stirring your coffee at the morning break and you hear a chance remark. But it's not a chance <coughs> remark, it changes your life. Yet these nodal moments can change our life's direction like road signs. And so one such moment came to me in the spring of 1953 when I asked C.S. Lewis after our dinner together with other friends what was the central message of all his writings, professional and otherwise? Simply, he replied, against reductionism. Strongly, he was reacting to the popular philosophy of the period that we called logical positivism, which he hated like deadly poison, for it was infiltrating into literary criticism his own professional trade but was also dominating the whole secular culture. He had to protest, but he had to use all the imaginable literary songs that there are. Poetry, letters, prayers, science fiction, children's stories, <coughs> broadcast talks, lectures, essays, even the revision of myths, like he did in his last novel, Till We Have Faces. Even his conversion from deism to the Christian faith was a reduction against religious uh, reductionism. 
For Lewis recognized the profundity that truth needs to be explored in many dimensions. As a contemporary German educator, Eugene Rosenstock Husey stated, the more central a truth is, the greater variety of ways we must use to express it. The greatest truths, therefore, must be expressed by everybody in his own terms, that is, in the most personalized ways that you can imagine. Whereas the smallest truth can be expressed by everybody in the same terms. You say that two and two makes four. Well, that's a simple truth. But the great truths of the mystery of the reality of Christianity requires us to use myth, imagination, folktale, poetry, allegory, symbolism, apologia, and indeed all the scope of human history and all the differing cultures of peoples. Scientism then in our social sciences today reveals then a great lie, a great reductionism in rejecting the great truth of Christianity as the foundation for all social life. But what Lewis did not experience since in his day, since he died in 1963, was now this new advent of globalization which is enriching Christianity more than ever, and thus deepening it also in unprecedented ways, yet whose trajectory of preaching Christ and the gospel as it always has been. As Miroslav Wolf opens his book, Flourishing Why We Need Religion in a Globalized World, he says the roots of world religions and globalization reach back nearly as far as the recorded history of humanity itself. So a great defense against robotic culture is already in place, namely cross-cultural communication and education to enrich us mutually, even through diverse religions, how deeply humanity is grounded in the most primitive to the most advanced of our cultures. Our Christian faith shared by all the members of the body of Christ ethically so, become the richer the more we have uh, intercourse with other nations and differing ethnic groups worshipping and living together. The whisper of the new Narnia further up and further in is now reaching global proportions in ever more cross-cultural communication of fellowships and friendships. So we conclude as we return to the three great statements of biblical faith. What are they? Firstly, God has created ex nihilo. Out of nothing, God has created all things. All three monotheistic faiths are unanimous that God's creation has no rival in the paganism of nature as a rival reality. There's no such reality as the goddess natura. So we as Christians should stop using the word nature altogether. We should start using the vocabulary that's biblical. We're talking about creation. And even Islamic scholars will rebuke us Christians if we keep on talking about nature. Think of that. Secondly, God has created man in his image and likeness, what we call the Imago Dei. That is why the more globalized Africans, Aboriginals in Australia, Hindus, Chinese, Japanese, Muslims, Westerns, all intermingle, atheist, secular, or religious, the more we are surprised today how decent these people can be. (laughs) They're kind, but they're also cruel. They're honest or dishonest. They give or they rob. They're all the same. And you'd be surprised what you can learn. Those of you who are engaged in 
marriage uh, family therapy should learn much more from the aboriginals of Australia. They have much more complex ideas about uh, social relationships and family life than we have. If you want to be able to uh, exercise your body in a, in a better way, you go to the Hindu yogas to learn how to breathe more effectively. And on and on you can go. You can see that other people are smarter than we are. If you want to have uh, stomach control, then go to the Maoris, because they've lived on uh, canoes for thousands of years crossing the Pacific. So let us learn that each ethnic group, primitive or advanced, has something to teach the rest of us. But then thirdly, and this is why you see, uh, um, I, when I used to live in a, my own house and uh, didn't know the neighbours very well, I never got to know them, but now I'm living in a condo and I meet uh, all sorts of people of all sorts of descriptions, all sorts of faith or lack of faith, and they're all very decent people, you see. And it stumbles you as a Christian, how can they be so decent if they're not a Christian? <laughs> Well, open your eyes to God's creation. So now thirdly, Jews and Christians also believe, and they alone believe, in creatio perverbum, that God has created all things by the word of his power. That's why, to the amazement of Albert Einstein, he observed that the most incomprehensible reality of the cosmos was his human intelligibility. Why? Because God has created all things by the word of his power. It's because the manifestation we have of his truth, humans have the ability to be scientists. And so one of the things that we should be looking forward to is that the best friends of the future of science are the Christians. Think about that. There's no ontology in the scepticism of the atheist for sustaining modern science because modern science actually came through the Reformation and the snapping of the Platonic or the Neoplatonic cosmology was uh, over, overtaken uh, by uh, the rise of Christian faith in the 16th, 17th century. So then to become intelligent Christians is our common goal. Each of us has a mandate to use our mind. But also we have a mandate to use as uh, Deuteronomy expresses it, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. And Mark adds, and with all thy soul. And then with all thy mind and then with all thy might well what does that mean it means that to be intelligent Christian it's not your IQ that's enough it's in fact the healing of your family heritage the freedom from the spells of what curses us all our family heritage and uh, I shocked the Christians in Hong Kong by saying that as Chinese Christians that the spells of their family dysfunctional uh, influences was no different from the voodoo of the Haitians or the uh, spells of the witch doctor in Africa because one thing that you discover in international medicine is that uh, no witch doctor can cast a spell on another tribe. It's within the same family, the same extended. So when we love the Lord with all our heart, God is freeing us from the spells of our family heritage. When we love him with all our mind, yes, we're using our intelligence. When we say that we love him with all our might, it means that we do so in twofold ways. 
we love him in sacrifice because he's the sacrificial God you can't be a friend of the crucified without suffering so you embrace it redemptively and you cannot be a friend of God without humility because he's the source of all humility wow so that's what it means then to be an intelligent Christian and so then of course we begin to hear the whisper of Narnia again further in as well as further up further in to the heritage of our own families further up to have a much bigger view of God as J.B. Phillips said so long ago our God is too small to be a dwarf Christian is an oxymoron of a Christian it's our Christian obligation to make every thought captive to Christ as 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5 indicates so robotic intelligence cannot do any of those things none so again robots are not persons but our identity is to be persons in Christ and to be a person is to be a self for the other loving our neighbour as ourself and so our daily conversation should be more about we than I for as we dwell in the communion of saints where our identity originates it also remains rooted eternally and so I'm finding continually now as I write more books I'm finding the greatest delight in being invited by others to co-author to co-edit these books often in quite unexpected ways but also in everyday life no word should be more frequent in our vocabulary than we and not I I can readily be kidnapped by robots we never will (laughs) so I shudder at every worship service when all our songs are about I, I, I Oh, preserve us. <laughs> That's why I'm so eager for our dialogue now to begin. <laughs> we are sharing together. <clears throat> A marvelous introduction. I hope the conversation will do justice to the occasion. Where there is no vision, the people perish. This man has had more vision than any one of us in this room, I suggest, over the last 50, 60 years, or even longer. And I think the opportunity to interact with Jim Houston is a privilege. I want to simply comment on one the first point that Jim made about the use of the word nature versus creation came to my attention rather recently that uh, in my lectures I was focusing on nature much more than creation and it seems like a profound and very simple thing to correct but uh, I'm sure there are many other words that we use informally without realizing that we are deceiving ourselves and our students by using the the secular word rather than the theologically profound word. But anyway, please, uh, questions, comments? James. Thank you, um, Jim. I was wondering if you could uh, share with us any of. Uh, Can you? Uh, I was wondering if you could share with us any of the spells or curses that you think are common to Western families. Uh, as you mentioned, that uh, we have our own, uh, like those of other other cultures. What do you What do you see as some of the, the common ones that inflict uh, families in North America? 
Well, I think um, when I was in Washington, D.C., just before I went to uh, Japan, and they were saying, oh, with a certain amount of condensation. And what will you learn in Japan about the obstacles for Japanese to become Christians? Oh, I said, well, uh, that may be one of the th- objects that I've had, but I've had to change my mind. And you see, uh, if you're traveling on the road, uh, as Unamuno once said, you, you have two ways of looking at life. You either look at life from the balcony... Uh, in which everything is static, you see. Or if you're on the road, then the view is changing every moment. And so I already was changing my track because I realized that I had had a motive of going to Japan in order to show the Japanese Christians what were the blockages for the, in their psyche in ten different addresses how this blocks the seeds from being sown in the good ground. And uh, the thorns and the thistles or the stones are obstructing uh, the penetration of the, of the word. But then I suddenly realized when my friends in Washington said, and what do you think uh, you'll learn from that? And so I turned it on them and I said, it'll give me new tools by which to critique American culture. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, they didn't like that. (laughs) But that's what happens when you go global. You begin to realize that every culture have positives that can help us in the gospel. And so one of the things that inhibits Japanese Uh, from receiving the gospel is also the very thing that is medicine for us in the West to receive. And that is the the whole concept of AMAI, A-M-A-E, is that we don't have a personal identity, we have a social identity. And so it's very difficult for them to understand the uniqueness of being a human being. Uh, They understand it much more in pantheistic terms as being like particles of water in the sea. And so am I is uh, expressive of that social belonging to each other. Um, Well, but on the other side, uh, we could do with a good dose of am I because in our American culture, we've had three centuries of uninhibited development of individualism. And so from the time of uh, the 17th century or the 16th century with uh, the monarchical model of the self and then the Lockean proprietorial notion of the self that what I have colonized or drained of the, of the marshes is my property or in the uh, Russian self of my self-consciousness and my imagination is my own property. All of this has led to, with no challenge from a primitive culture, uh, that we become intolerably narcissistic, as you can see in the the Donald Trumps of our generation, (laughs) or in the buildings on our skyline, (laughs) all by people with a big ego. (coughs) We can learn an awful lot from Japanese Christians to be understanding much more the nature of their sense of fellowship. Or you can think of uh, other cultures also making their contribution in different ways. So that's why I see that today, that when Paul was speaking about that we're all members of the same body, uh, we might have thought that being members of the same body is in our individualistic culture that some of us are chemists and some of us are uh, mathematicians and some of us are school teachers and some of us are shopkeepers and business people that we all contribute <coughs> well that's a very shallow view of contributing in the body of Christ what is a much richer sense of the body of Christ is that God needs Maoris and he needs Aborigines and he needs uh, uh, people from India and people from China all contributing together in a new richness for what is the body of Christ and it's only because we see things globally now with the tech revolution that we have this benefit of a much broader perspective 
Is that an answer? <laughs> sure. I'd like to take that one step further. Can you can you speak up? I'd like to take that one step further and ask you this. Uh, Japan had an unusual opportunity to develop that we sense. Am I? I'm not sure I've got yes, that right. Yes. Uh, being an island country, or a collection of islands, yes. separating itself consciously from yes. Chinese culture, yes. and uh, not allowing immigration. They could stay that way for a long time and develop um, we, you know, rather than I. But we in North America both have immigrant populations right from the beginning. Yes. More than one kind of person came, yes. continues to come. Yes. And we pride ourselves on multiculturalism, which happens to be coincident with developing I, very egocentric stuff, because how do we maintain a sense of identity when our next door neighbor has a whole different identity, you know? And, and we, we aren't strangers to them. So how would you address that problem in helping us to become more we-centered and less egocentric in a multicultural context? Yes, that's, that is a big, big challenge. And of course, it all goes back to the fact is how multicultural are we really? You see, uh, is it the dominant culture that's absorbing the, the minority culture, mm -hmm. you see? Initially, yes. And each time that's what's happened. I remember arguing with the first minister of uh, culture, who was a Christian. Um, really, did he know what he was doing in being the, the minister of uh, multiculture for the federal government? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he knew what he was doing, to be honest. <laughs> But uh, yes, I think that's the that's the issue that you see. What gets in the way is our pride. We we're not humble enough to appreciate the whole human race. So um, nothing can be more significant for a Christian than humility. That's the protocol in entering into the temple of the King of Kings. <laughs> so there are many different dimensions by which you could answer that question. Yes. But it certainly means that we begin to think in other categories and yes. other mindsets, you see. That we do have paradigm shifts of, of um, mindset. Okay. Thank you. Yes, uh, do you see these minority cultures as disappearing? Slowly, do you see these minority cultures that have, you know, dominated the development of history uh, yes. as slowly disappearing under what you call the robotic culture? They're yes. slowly being converted, or and whatever contribution they might have made yes. is possibly being lost a bit. Well, that's what we have to try and uh, and be. Uh, I, I, in, a, in a profound sense, Christians should be the curators of anthropology as they're curators of science. <laughs> and so that's another perspective. So take, for example, the recent uh, into Richmond. There are a few Armenian Christians who've come in. Now, these Armenian, Armenian Christians are from Syria. Well, now... If you speak to a Syrian Christian about Orthodox Christianity, they don't think we in the West have been as Orthodox as we should be. Oh, is that so? Well, now, why? Well, it goes back to the debate of the Council of Chalcedon, where the, the question was being asked by the bishops, how do we understand the God-man, that Jesus Christ is both human and divine? Well, the pragmatism of the bishops of Chalcedon of the Eastern Mediterranean said, well, that's easy. Uh, the distinction is that when Jesus is performing miracles, he's the son of God. And uh, when he's speaking parables simply to the peasants, he's the son of man. <laughs> oh, said the Assyrian church, that's wrong. You're trying to explain a mystery when it is a mystery. And so they cut themselves off from the, uh, the Chalcedonian uh, 
decision as being a heresy. Well, interesting that now, so many centuries later, we've got Armenian Christians who can say to us, and how have you sustained their attitude about the mystery of the God-man? You see? Do we, can we learn anything from you about it? In other words, none of us are really historical enough, you see. And if you're haunted by the fact that all history is the source of truth, you see, then you begin to see things differently. So, globally and historically, we go broader and deeper than ever before. Mm-hmm. It's a different mindset, that's all. Yes. Last uh, several decades, uh, there's this evolving truth that you know that again you could just sorry. In the last several decades, there's, there's been this evolving truth that there's a divine spark within each of us. Yes. Sort of captured by the so-called New Age movement. Yes. So I'm just wondering if you could comment on the fact that we're created in the image of God, so we have this capacity to fulfill what God's intentions are for our lives, for our humanity, but how do we respond to that that uh, that comment, say, by by a modern-day person, postmodern-day person, who says, I've got all I need within myself to find fulfillment, joy, meaning, purpose? Yes. What do we say to that? Well, we have to say, that's not the interpretation of being made in the image and likeness of God. Because uh, it does not mean that he imparts deity to us. What he does is he makes us his representative on earth as his co-agent or co-regent of creation. And so it's like the uh, illustration of the pharaohs that they're on their border posts, their custom posts on the borders of the frontiers of uh, Egypt, they would have an effigy of the pharaoh. That effigy was not that pharaoh actually was there, but his power was there. His influence was there. And so that's, uh, in a sense, the analogy that we may take, that God sets us up as his co-regents. And so we rule with him, but he is the ruler. We're essentially vice-gerents, or Mm vice-regents. And so, therefore, that is totally against any idea that we have deity within ourselves. Our relationship is an iconic relationship. We reflect, we relate to, but he is the only reality that is God and of course that's reinforced by uh, the doctrine of creator ex nihilo that God created all things that he was not beholden to any other agency or any other source than who he is but it's our idolatrous minds that always want to somehow probe beyond and to uh, and not be prepared to accept a mystery. And so, uh, in the whole study, which is a very devious uh, philosophical study of the doctrine of Creator ex nihilo, we have the kind of situation that we find um, in um, the mathematician at, uh, in uh, Oxford at the end of the 19th century when he wrote about, um, what was uh, Alice in Wonderland, mm-hmm. um, and the question is asked, uh, uh, and who passed you on the road? Nobody. Well, then nobody must move faster than you do. <laughs> so ex nihilo has to become something in the minds of those who are questioning that probe, you see. But that's the issue that we find uh, the human mind is always in rebellion to mystery. Yes. I like your uh, comments about we should use uh, creation 
versus nature. Yeah. But what do you think of uh, Jonathan Edwards once uh, has a famous quote, nature is God's best evangelist. Well, you see, he was caught up. Uh, and uh, you see, we're all enculturated. So if you were to think of the culture of Jonathan Edwards in the 18th century, he was right in the middle of that uh, whole development of deism. And although he was fighting against deism, he was still using some of the vocabulary associated with deism, you see, even though he was against it, very vigorously so, you see. So I think you, you always have to see things in a context. That happened to be his context. A general comment, if I may, Jim. We're all very good at bashing re- reductionism. Yes. And uh, you've done so effectively this morning. <laughs> <laughs> However, we don't seem to be so good at exploring mystery. Yes. We are very much captive, it seems to me, as a very intelligent group of Christians in using reductionism in our theology. Yes. And it seems to me very often we don't hear enough and we probably don't experience enough of the mystery. And so that is a comment that occurred to me when you talked of your conversation with C.S. Lewis and his hatred of reductionism. Mm -hmm. He also spent his life creating more of a sense of of mystery. Mm -hmm. Is there a person, are there writers, are there groups of Christians who are more sensitive to mystery in our present uh, Canadian reality? That's a very interesting question. I mentioned Rosenstock Husey who had his own of course uh, we all have our own defaults and he undoubtedly had his too but uh, he's an example of a very devout uh, German Catholic who stood up against Hitler and stood up against uh, having uh, he could have been a brilliant uh, lawyer he could have been a brilliant philosopher he could have been a brilliant theologian but he in a sense, uh, navigates through all of these things. Uh, so his uh, his understanding of the the transformation of the person in the mystery of Christ is probably one of the very few books that uh, I would say needs further exploration. Mm-hmm. It was published in English in 1947, but you've probably never heard of it uh, on the transformation. Of uh, of the of the Christian life, transformation of Christians. But um, he's an example of somebody who saw that, and that for him, the mystery that he dwelt on is the mystery of speech. That God has given man this uh, this wonderful ability to speak. So when we talk about mystery, we can speak about mystery at many different levels, but one of them would be uh, the mystery of speech that distinguishes the human from the animal is one example of mystery. Mm-hmm. Or we could speak about the mystery of being personal, which means how far are we for the other and who is the other? Well, we can go on indefinitely being a person in Christ and finding mystery in that reality. In other words, the problem that we tend to find with mystery, it gets hijacked by sacramentalism. (laughs) And so there are people who, uh, if one was to think of us as Christians, one would say that there are perhaps four categories of Christians that we represent here, and we have four different psyches. And one psyche is sacramental. So to us, mysteries all smells and bells. <laughs> Essential. <laughs> and then there's the mystery of communitarianism that you get with the <coughs> with what we call the uh, um, uh, the 
other form of reformation of the Mennonites and the East Europeans uh, and living in communities. So there's a mystery of a communitarian life. Uh, and then we have the, uh, the psyche that's associated with a much more hypercognitive verbal communication that we evangelicals are very good at and uh, explaining everything. And, uh, and then uh, we have, of course, what makes some of us a bit more uncomfortable, the charismatic, uh, where you're outside of yourself in a much more kind of ecstatic psyche. And the problem about being too ecstatic is you're not very familiar with who you are. <laughs> so, <laughs> the problem is <laughs> we have these divergent uh, psyches even as we share together this morning, you see. Uh, so, yes, of course it's going to always lead us into... So what then is the posture that we should have towards mystery? I think uh, the reverence that we cannot give enough to God and with the reverence that we give to God the humility that we have towards God and so that uh, there's no greater need of humility than when we say there's no other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved but the name of Jesus why? How do we say that? With pride? Of course we can't say it in pride. We're talking about the humility of God. So how can we express it other than with the gentleness of amazing love, amazing grace? Uh, so <coughs> these are some of the, the ways I'm struggling to answer your question. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. To both geographers, I, I, I just on that earlier point, the mystery of language. At the UBC geography department, you kept saying the creation. Would you be regarded as eccentric? Would, would people say, hey, watch it, you're bringing another kind of discourse into a science, please get rid of that? Or could you respond to that? I, I, I find the use of that word, any of our vocabulary can, can be offensive, and you have to explain it. Just a response. Yes, well, I think um, it's how we explain it. It's our manner of explanation, as I say. Uh, anyone is uh, attracted to somebody who expresses it very humbly. So that would be the, the first thing for... They're not used to humility. Uh, they're proud of their uh, identity as a professional you see and as I say uh, what I found that's given me freedom in life have been two things one of them is I don't have a professional identity uh, so that's the first thing it gives you freedom and therefore you can explore anything if, you <laughs> if you're not a professional <laughs> and then the second thing that I found is that I hide in this cover of historian of ideas because you're always digging back into something further and further past you see so that helps me. so I don't speak as a geographer <laughs> Can I respond to that question? I'm seen as very eccentric in many ways. And using the word creation in class is seen as a dangerous thing. It's perceived because the, the hard secularity of our major university uh, is anxious to dissociate itself from the word creation so in a sense that becomes a testimony in a secular environment just using the word creation now it's ridiculous that we've reached that point but it's a reality and I think that uh, of course in one's mentoring of students 
there is no difficulty at all in speaking about faith. And it's very often the main reason for our mentoring. But in terms of how one incorporates one's statements of faith in formal lectures in a secular institution, uh, becomes a, a challenge. Yes. And it's quite ridiculous that that should yes. be the case, but nevertheless, it is. So I appreciate your question, Harvey. I think it, it's a... No, and I think what you're saying, all of is that um, pastorally, um, we will be gentle with the way we uh, approach a question. So if they're using a word that we would immediately demolish, we don't do that. We 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 say, well, you use the word nature, oh, so then let's speak about nature. You see, mm-hmm. all right. So then you gently lead them further and further into what are the perspectives that we have about nature, and you. And we have, of course, a wonderful geographer, Clarence Glacken, who's talked about nature and the history of the word, and so we refer them to an authority like Clarence Glacken uh, and see where does the word take you. (laughs) That is actually a great work of literature, as well as geography. There are not many of those. Mm -hmm. um, Clarence Glacken's Traces on the Rhodian Shore is a, a remarkable historical and geographical document. Yes. Uh, first of all, going back a few minutes, you, you mentioned a book published in 1947. Yes. Are you talking about the Christian future? Uh, Rosenstock Yuthi? Oh, yes. I think so. Has uh, Husey, you mean? Oh. Yes. Von Husey. Yes, yeah. he um, he developed um, he uh, he actually um, uh, was uh, a Jewish Christian, and he um, mm. created um, the um, adult education program for Jews in Germany in the 1930s. So he became a hitman for Hitler and Himmler. And so he fled and went to the uh, state of Maine in uh, Northeast America. He tried out being a professor of philosophy at uh, Harvard for three years, but that was enough for him. (laughs) And so he then retired to his estate. And so there's a whole um, friends of uh, von Husey today that still uh, read his works. Yes. Very interesting man. We'll talk about that. Yeah. Uh, going back to the question of creation in the in geography and elsewhere, part of it circumvent the the difficulty ambiguity of creation with the notion of stewardship. Um, the, but there's another difficulty in that creation, as we use the word here today is very close to the concept of creationism, which is hated by the scientists. Yes, yes. And actually counterproductive in every respect. Yes, yes. The other comment is that you can use various things which are very Christian in the other context. I have used the parable about not building your house on sand in the context of environmental impact statements. Mm-hmm. Well, it's in Matthew, of course. Yes. But it is yes. the ultimate statement about yes. uh, paying attention yes. to the environment. Yes, yes. Well, that's very right, and I think that uh, our sensitivity to bad religion is not a subject I spoke about this morning, but that needs to be explored much more, and some of you may have attended the laying lectures that we had recently with Richard Dowett, who's uh, really a very intelligent journalist in New York for the New York uh, Sunday Times, and um, he's written a book called Bad Religion, and uh, creationism is, of course, an example of bad religion. Mm-hmm. And um, 
So that's, uh, that's baggage that we carry as evangelicals. We have to get rid of it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, that's one decision we reached this morning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> no. There tends to be currently a very anti-religious sentiment in science in general. Yes. But I believe you commented that science and religion and faith should be complementary. Mm-hmm. Can you expand on that a little? Well, I was uh, I was helped to highlight some of this when I was in Japan because one of my addresses was how there could be a breakthrough for young people uh, in Japan for the Christian faith as no other breakthrough has been in the past. And that could be through establishing um, a new interest in the history of science at the highest level in the National University of... Uh, so I was speaking to the... Uh, postgraduate students, uh, some of who were quantum physicists and uh, mathematicians and other high-level um, scientists. And um, it was saying, you know, when you look at the history of uh, the origins of science in Asian religions, you're embarrassed as a modern scientist with that heritage. I mean, what happens in Eastern religions is that there's a humble woodcutter in the forest, and of course everything in, uh, in, in the, the actual religions of Asia are dealing with forest. Mm-hmm. And the forest is primeval, primordial, and it's mysterious. And so here's this humble woodcutter with a hammer and a chisel uh, hammering wood, uh, ch- uh, splitting wood. He penetrates into the mystery of nature and immediately he becomes a god. Mm-hmm. And now he becomes um, the god of thunder. Well, you teach that to a contemporary students on climatology, they laugh at you. And so I went to the History Museum of uh, Tokyo, the National History Museum, and said, do you have an exhibit on the history of modern science? Oh, no, oh, no, 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 we don't. Oh, why not? Well, we never thought about that. They're very embarrassed. (laughs) (laughs) And then I went to the National Museum of Culture and said, in the history of Japanese culture, have you an exhibit on the rise of modern science? Oh, no, 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 we don't have anything about that, you see. (laughs) So that's where we're beginning to show that uh, without the ontology of Reformed Christian faith that the Puritans especially uh, people like Thomas Pratt uh, who is one of the founders of the Royal Society and then again at the end of the century we have Boyle who invented of course is the discovery of, uh, of gas behaviours uh, these are the originators of modern science, they're Christians and so now we have to say well what would be the entry point for a new generation of Christians in Japan and I think the Achilles heel will be penetrating through the history of science that is established at a national level now Cambridge have already shown pioneering in this because they have a chair in Cambridge on the um, on science and faith and it's basically a study of the history of science so that's our entry point. It's very exciting. <coughs> but it has to have vision. Well, Jim, I think uh, you have exhausted the audience. <laughs> <laughs> as a as a admirer of your ten decades of uh, Christian witness, Christian inspiration. Ten decades. Ten decades. <laughs> I should say, in your tenth decade. <laughs> if we are all uh, as lively and as provocative uh, when we reach our tenth decade, 
and uh, we should all be very grateful. But thank you for leading the discussion, for provoking uh, the very important remarks about why, where we should be going. Thank you for thank being you with us. Much. Thank you.